It's hard to imagine that an important espionage case operating during the Cold War could have a connection to this sleepy college town we live in of Davis, but it does. In fact, what has been called the most significant spy ring to have operated in that long standoff between the United States and Soviet Union did have a Davis resident as its key element. It was called the Walker Family of Spies, headed as it was by one John Walker, who had talked his son and brother into helping him. The key to the Walker's success, however, depended upon Jerry Whitworth, who in 1985 was living in a trailer park located out on Pole Line Road, right here in Davis. Whitworth's, Whitworth's career as a spy came to an end one day when he was paid a visit by agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. It's quite a story. And here to tell us about it is John Peterson, the FBI agent who drove out to Davis 21 years ago to talk to Davis's connection to what was called the most potentially damaging spy case of the Cold War. John Peterson was a special agent of the FBI for 29 years, of which 10 were spent in counterintelligence. John Peterson, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you. Good to be here. Not to put words in your mouth, sir, but is it fair to say that in your 29 years in, with the FBI that, that the case of Jerry Wentworth was your most remarkable? I think in many ways it, uh, it was very significant. Uh, certainly uh, was the most uh, notorious, infamous, uh, had, the, had the most uh, publicity, international publicity. Um, it lasted, for me, it lasted almost two years. And uh, aside from the fact that it was so damaging to our country, uh, it was quite an interesting case. And uh, Whitworth was by far the most damaging agent uh, for John Walker because of his extraordinary access to uh, radio cryptography and codes and various things that are uh, that the Soviet Union was desperately uh, searching for. So, John Peterson, a lot of people, I'm sorry to report, uh, listening to our show today are, are, are new to Davis, and in, in many cases were probably not even born when this case took place in the mid-'80s. So can we ta tell a little bit about who exactly was John Walker? Yes, uh, John Walker was a career uh, Navy man. Um, in 1968, he'd probably been in the Navy for eight to ten years. He, at that time, he was a petty officer. Uh, and in 1968, he walked into the Soviet embassy in Washington, D.C. with some codes uh, and show, showed it to the, uh, to the Soviet KGB officer on duty there who knew very well what he was looking at. And, uh, and that's how his career started. He was a very valuable agent for the uh, Soviet KGB, which is the civilian um, intelligence service as well as the GRU, which is the military intelligence service for the, uh, for the Soviet Union. Now, as, as I recall the case, he, he did retire from the Navy and then needed someone else to provide him with these codes that formerly he had access to, and I guess that's how he got Whitworth involved? That's correct. He met Whitworth, I believe, around uh, 1971, about three years after he'd been involved with the Soviets. Um, he uh, sort of... Uh, wined and dined him a little bit. Uh, Jerry Whitworth, I, I think, thought John Walker was a real cool guy. He was uh, a ladies' man. He had all kinds of money to, to spread around. And he kind of just wooed Jerry uh, along. Jerry was the same MOS as John was. He was a radio man. 
in the Navy. He was a petty officer. By this time, Walker was a warrant officer, and uh, so he was he was uh, Jerry Walk- uh, Whitworth's superior. When Walker retired in 1976, uh, he relied on on Whitworth to furnish him with the codes that he had been furnishing to the Soviets. Um, they paid him during his 15 years or so of doing this. Uh, he was paid over a million dollars by the Soviets, which sounds like a lot of money, but it really isn't for the incredible amount of uh, information they received. Let's talk about that. Uh, a lot of people consider this to be one of the most important uh uh, spy rings in the whole Cold War. The Soviets gave it a really high priority. I guess they ranked it right up there with atomic secrets. What, what did the Soviets gain from what, uh, what Walker and Whitworth sold them? Well, what they gained was basically a, a, a window on the entire United States Navy, including the submarine service, uh, the air wing, and the surface Navy, because all naval vessels and uh, shore installations operate off the exact same code. They all have to be on the same page every day. So what Walker was able to do was to give the Soviets the traffic, and then they would, the key to the traffic, they could listen in on radio messages, written reports, all, all manner of uh, operations, tactics, strategies used by the U.S. Navy. Um, they didn't have it real time because the Soviets would record the uh, the, tra- the radio traffic, and then months later they would get the key, the, the crypto, they call it, uh, key from from uh, Walker, and then they could go ahead and and uh, decipher it and and translate it into into Russian. It gave them a, uh, a unique view of the United States Navy, and uh, it was amazing. Uh, you know, what they uh, were able to garner from that. I would gather then, I guess, from the late 60s to mid-80s, anything the Navy was talking about, the Soviets knew. Pretty much. Uh, When when Walker was debriefed, he told the uh, military debriefers that anything he had, color it gone, he said. It's (laughs) it's gone. Uh, So whatever he had access to, and he couldn't remember everything. So in that sense, it wasn't that valuable of a debriefing because... I mean, he couldn't be specific about it. Uh, one other thing I might mention was the the way that the Soviets initially got onto this was they uh, were able to get their hands on a cipher machine uh, that used the codes that, that Walker gave them. They got that cipher machine from the USS Pueblo, which was seized off the coast of North Korea in 1968, and eventually ended up in in Moscow. So they had that hardware. All they needed was the uh, the, the codes, and that was what Walker furnished them, started furnishing them that very same year. Well, I gather it was was an incredibly successful ring, since the government really had no idea that it was operating. That's right. Um, There were little clues uh, over the years, such as when the Navy went on operations. The uh, the Soviet uh, Air Force was there. The the, uh, the Soviet submarines and surface craft just happened to be in the area. <laughs> it was indicative that yeah. uh, something was uh, you know being let out of the bag. So the first time the government has any idea involves you. You're working in San Francisco, and I guess a letter comes in. Right in May 
of 1984, um, I happened to be um, sitting in on the uh, as a supervisor of the uh, of, on the Soviet squad. We we had various uh, the FBI was broken up into various squads based on the work you were doing. Uh, so I was sitting in uh, supervisory capacity, uh, filling in, and this letter came to my attention from the. Uh, one of the ladies that uh, answered the phones and takes complaints, uh, she brought it to me, and as soon as I read it, I I felt there was a, there was credibility attached to it. They used terms that ordinary people wouldn't use, um, such as key lists, codes. Uh, there were some abbreviations that looked like it might, you know, a military right. person might have written the letter. So I attached some credibility to it, and I. Uh, the letter basically said that the person writing it was involved in an espionage ring. Uh, he'd been involved in it for many years and knew, knew now that it was uh, a ring that was furnishing the Soviet Union with codes. So if true, it was very damaging. Uh, the, the writer further wanted to meet with the FBI. Uh, at, at the same time, he wanted immunity from prosecution. He wanted to be rewarded. Um, in that sense, it was it was sort of an unrealistic uh, expectation on his part, which I think he later realized. Um, but he wanted the FBI to answer him in the uh, in the Monday edition of the L.A. Times. Okay. So we answered his his uh, first letter. Tried to get him to meet us. Uh, he. he sent a second letter and said, no, I'm not going to meet you. I'm, I'm afraid what will happen. We tried again to get him to meet us abroad in Mexico. Uh, he he nicked that also. And in his last letter to us, he pretty much said, well, I think I'm home free, so I'm not going to I'm not going to bother uh, contacting you again. So how many letters did he send? He sent a total of four. Okay. So that, that you basically were, were tantalized, but really it was kind of a, a, a more like dead end, I guess? Yes, we, we couldn't smoke them out. Uh, we really couldn't do much with the uh, all the letters except one were postmarked Sacramento. So we figured, well, he's got to be in the, probably in the Sacramento area somewhere. Okay. But other than that, uh, we, we had the letters analyzed by a uh, linguistics expert. Uh, that kind of was interesting, but it didn't point in any real direction. Yeah, I'm gathering from uh, you know from watching television and following the news that the FBI profilers can gain quite a bit of information from reading letters like that. But I guess it wasn't enough in this case. That's correct. It just it wasn't enough. Um, it didn't point us in any real direction other than yes, it, it was probably a military guy, probably an enlisted military guy. But beyond that, it really wasn't very helpful. All right. So uh, so you guys are in a dead end in the in the, in the West Coast, but. Uh, but I guess out in the East Coast, someone gets gets wind of Walker. How how that happen? That happened because his wife, who he was estranged from at that time, uh, he early on he had taken her on on drops with him when he'd go out and and uh, make dead drops for the Soviets. His wife would go along with him, so she knew about his activities. Uh, so in 1984 and 1985. She had come forward uh, first to the FBI in the Boston area, you know, basically uh, told them about John Walker's activities. However, she was an alcoholic, and she was drinking at the time, and right. she was 
probably she probably was talking to an agent that wasn't very you know that, that may have been on the criminal side of the house as opposed to the counterintelligence side and maybe didn't appreciate you know what, what she was telling him so that that report was sort of put on the back burner uh, at some point someone at the uh, headquarters level saw that report and referred um, the Norfolk office to to Mrs. Walker and they got together started talking and they realized that there was something to this at the same time they started talking about somebody back on the west coast okay uh, she thought his name was Wentworth so unbeknownst to me uh, as I'm trying to get something going with these anonymous letters uh, an agent in our East Bay office in our Oakland office was working on leads from from the Norfolk office on this Wentworth who, t- who turned out to be Whitworth how did you draw the link between your letters and, and this this potential guy on the West Coast? It just sort of came together that I started talking to the agent uh-huh. who was doing this, and, and we just said, this has got to be the same guy. Um, so at, just before we were going to go inter- interview him over in Davis, um, Walker was arrested back east on a weekend. He had been uh, followed from Norfolk up to the... Maryland suburbs. There were uh, probably a couple hundred uh, FBI people on him, <laughs> including airplanes and cars and everything else. Unbeknownst to him, uh, he, he made his drop of, of documents that he'd gotten from his son. He was on an aircraft carrier yeah. in the Mediterranean. Okay. And those were the documents that, that Walker left for the Soviet. Walker had thrown down a soda can, a particular type of soda can, to signal to the Soviet that was going to pick up the package and everything was was clear to, was good to go. Unfortunately, uh, somebody in the FBI back there picked up the, the soda can, which was the signal. So when the Soviet came along and didn't see the signal, he went back to Washington. Right. Meanwhile, uh, Walker went to a hotel in, in Rockville, Maryland, and he was arrested about three in the morning by, uh, by FBI agents. So that forced our hand here on the West Coast. Uh, that happened Sunday night. Monday is when we came to Davis and, uh, and interviewed uh, Jerry Whitworth. Well, tell us about your trip out to Davis. How did that work? Uh, myself and two other uh, agents from the San Francisco office met up with the Sacramento office agents. And we, uh, myself and a Sacramento agent, interviewed uh, Whitworth. He was living in a... Uh, mobile home off Pole Line Road, like you said. Yeah, it's still there. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> and when we knocked on the door, he was in the process of, of writing a letter. We later found out it was a letter to, to John Walker. He invited us in. Uh, we informed him that uh, John Walker had been arrested uh, the night before for espionage, and we knew that Jerry was a friend of his, and we needed to talk to him. He agreed to talk to us, you know, gave us some superficial information about John, how they met, what they did in the Navy, um, but nothing of any substance. At that point, I pulled out the, uh, the anon- first anonymous letter, and showed it to him, and I said, I asked him if he'd written it. And he got very nervous, uh, started shaking, and uh, said he didn't want to say anything further. So I asked him if if he would agree to uh, 
letting us search his house. He said he wanted to talk to an attorney first. And uh, so at that point, I, I left the room to find out, to make a phone call and find out where we would go next, which was probably to apply for a search warrant, secure the house and apply for a search warrant. As it turned out, he changed his mind and permitted us and you know, uh, probably 20 people, 20 FBI personnel to search his house. We found some incri- the incriminating letter he was writing to John Walker. Uh, we found other things. We found several Monday editions of the L.A. Times, which was incriminating also. Um, and then, as it turned out, uh, he was not arrested at that point. In an espionage case, the Department of Justice has to authorize the the arrest. It can't be made on the local level. So what we did was surveil his house for several days. And then we eventually we went back and searched again more thoroughly with a search warrant. Mm-hmm. And uh, ultimately he was arrested uh, about 10 days later. So you were, just, you were surveilling and make sure that he didn't flee, in other words? Right, that yeah. he didn't flee, that he didn't uh, destroy evidence. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, the case certainly uh, certainly made uh, international headlines uh, in, in the wake of, of taking Whitworth into custody and getting everybody in the Walker family. What later happened in court? John, John Walker pled guilty uh, to espionage, so there was no trial for him. His, his, he pled guilty to get his son a sentence of 25 years. His brother also pled, I believe, uh, and he got, his brother was a small player in this, he worked for a a military contractor okay. who built ships, and uh, he got he got a term in the, in prison. The only trial that was held was was Whitworth, yeah. and it was held in San Francisco. John Walker testified against Jerry Whitworth for about two weeks in that trial. Ultimately, at the, before it was over, the defense admitted that they that Jerry had written those letters those so-called Russ letters, because they were signed Russ, R-U-S, uh-huh. and he was ultimately found guilty uh, and sentenced to 365 years and several hundred thousand dollars worth of fines. In, in a way, it's, it's almost a little bit hard not to feel sorry for Whitworth having been conned into this by Walker and then sent up the river by Walker in the end. It's it's quite a quite a story. Yes, I, I, I have very little sympathy for, for Jerry. Uh, you know, he knew what he was getting into. He liked the the good life, and uh, he certainly got his share of money out of it. So, yeah. Um, and none of them, well, with the exception of the son, uh, probably none of them will get out of prison before they die. The final comment on it, as I know from from studying some of the material in this and some of the things when we talked about previously uh, um, about about this case, that uh, what really what really nailed uh, Whitworth was. Once the IRS got onto his case, you can't spend a lot of money and not leave a trail. That's right. The IRS was able to, to track almost every purchase he made uh, on a daily basis for 10 years. It was just incredible. They must have issued thousands of subpoenas, and they, they tracked his spending, and it was um, you know, so much more than his Navy salary, and without a, an explanation for any other uh, source, uh, that as much as convicted him as anything. Well, there's a lesson for all those out there contemplating espionage. The IRS is going to get you, if not the FBI. That's right. <laughs> 
Well, John Peterson, thank you so much for speaking with us. You bet. Uh, my pleasure. John Peterson was a special agent of the FBI from 1969 until 1998. For over two and a half years, he worked on the Walker-Whitworth espionage ring.